1: Welcome, everyone, to today's edition of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and we're recording this on another terrific Thursday afternoon in Portland, Oregon, right smack dab in the center of August. Today is a really exciting day for me personally because it's my youngest son's final day at preschool, which means he's off to kindergarten in a couple of weeks and we finally cut our last tuition check. Something to celebrate on two levels. Now, we have another great episode lined up for all of you, and instead of talking about preschool, we're going to focus in on college and university study, as we always do. We're going to take a trip down to Texas and have a conversation about how to make the most of your contacts with adults through your college experience. But we want to flip the traditional model on its head today and start with a conversation about college finance. Joining me to talk about financing options is my colleague from out on the right side of the country, Beth Feinberg-Keenan. Afternoon, Beth.
2: Afternoon, Ian.
1: Now, I think there's a really good reason we're starting with this topic today, because the arrival of the fall and the start of the first semester at university brings a lot of challenges for students and families, and and especially because those first bills are coming due and families need to have a good idea or a plan for how to pay those first bills. Now, for a family that's starting to think about paying that fall tuition bill that doesn't have enough money to cover it in full... What are some options that they can start to consider?
2: So, One of the options that families um, can consider, even if they don't have enough money to cover that fall bill, is to consider enrolling in the payment plan or a payment plan that is offered by the university. Um, Mm. Most universities have a Payment plan, or they work with a third party who administers their payment plan, where a family can actually spread out their monthly payments. Now, if they don't have enough money, then family might be thinking, like, "Hey, like, how am I even going to do this? I don't. I just told you I don't have enough money to cover the fall bill." Well, if they don't have enough money, they can put part of it on the payment plan. So, let's say that they owe fifteen thousand dollars for the fall, but they really only have you know five thousand or ten thousand dollars that they can. cover cover out of cash flow, then, you know, look at putting that amount or a portion of that amount on the payment plan. I think it's a win-win situation. Um, Number one is that they're able to reduce the amount that they have to borrow for that year specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to keep down their overall debt. A lot of families might not um, realize that they can actually put just part of the amount on a payment plan. And... something like um, a student loan or a, a parent loan. Um, and then also think about other disposable income. I mean, families might be thinking just the money they have right there. So I have 5000 I have 10000 But do you have a $100? Do you have a couple hundred dollars extra per month that you could also put towards the payment plan that you're spreading it out over 10 months, over nine months? You know, it's a nice way to you know, pay as you go.
1: Can I, I did want to ask a question about a payment plan because I think often when people see that, they might say, well, what's the catch? What what am I, am I paying more through a payment plan? Am I, am I losing something by stretching it out? Because they would assume that a college wants to get all of that money for the the bill up front. Is there any catch to a payment plan or is it just a way to distribute the costs across a larger period of time?
2: You know, there's really no, Catch it all, I mean the only cost to a family is the enrollment fee uh, so some some schools might have an annual enrollment fee, some schools might have a per term enrollment fee, but from all of the schools that from working with families, most of them seen they're under a hundred dollars so if a family is able to do a payment plan over the four years let's say it's you know hundred dollars, then their cost of enrolling in a payment plan is four hundred dollars, but they're not having to pay any interest or accruing interest that they would on a loan if they were to do 100%, you know, borrow, you know, as a route of borrowing.
1: Right. And so, so you're bringing up borrowing, which I think is the next thing that a, a family might consider in terms of a financing option. Now, when they're thinking about borrowing, do they want to borrow just for that fall, for that first bill, or do they want to borrow for the whole year?
2: I always encourage families to borrow for the entire year. Okay. Um, when families are borrowing, especially if they're borrowing for the entire year, keep in mind that all of the money is not going to come up front. Uh, so if you're borrowing $20,000, you're not going to get a $20,000 loan sent to the school, you know, for the fall term. So plan what you need for the year. And what the school's going to do is they're going to say, okay, well, you know, and you applied for X number of dollars for, you know, for your child, uh, child's education. And they're going to equally disperse that. So they're going to send information back to the lender, certifying the loan, indicating that half is going to come in the fall and half is going to come in the spring or they're going to divide it equally over the number of terms that that school is. Hmm. But if for some reason you feel that you need more money in the fall for whatever reason it is, or maybe you need less money in the fall, have a conversation with the financial aid office. See if there's anything that they can do that they could potentially disperse, let's say two-thirds of the loan up front. They'll determine to see if, if your student is actually eligible for that, that much money for that, that fall term. The other thing that families should also keep in mind is that any private loan that they're taking out works like an unsubsidized loan. So interest is going to start occurring immediately on the portion that's been disbursed. So you really don't want the entire loan up front anyway. You only want the portion that, you, that, you, that you're going to use for that term because it's going to save you a little bit of interest.
1: So, you know, when we think about paying the the bill, it often is something that comes to parents. And I think that that's just sort of is the natural progression of parents pay for almost everything up until 18 and the bill comes along. And when it comes time to start thinking about higher education, there are two loan options, right? There's a, or at least two, but there's sort of is the parent loan and the student loan. Which of those is going to be better? Uh, or does it depend on the family situation?
2: You know, it really does depend on the family situation, but. I mean, there's a big but. Um, number one is, you know, the PLUS loan in some states are really the only true parent loans out there. You know, even the student loans that families say, hey, this is my student's loan that they're taking out. They are going to need to have a credit creditworthy co-founder to apply with. So even though the parent doesn't feel that that's their loan, they're still on the hook for that loan as equally as their student is. So I don't think that there's really, you know, I don't think there's really any particular like, hey, this is a student loan other than the federal student loans that your students can take out. So either way, whether the parents are taking out a plus loan or some states that offer the state loans, they're going to be a borrow on that loan, whether they like it or not. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so so it's something where you know they, they have to be aware of the terms, and that might lead into that next question, that is sort of how they know what loan it is that they should apply for. Um, I imagine there are a wide range of different options. What are some things to start to look at when you're comparing different loan options here?
2: And I think that and you know, that kind of ties back to you know, the, the previous question too, that you know really depends on the family. Of you know, there's really no right loan for any family. But right. where they should really start looking is there's a lot of information online. Um, many schools have lender lists on their websites. Um, schools often have uh, tools on their websites where they can compare options. Um, there's tools like um, Elm. Um, there's other um, articles out there uh, that Nerd Wallet puts out, uh, Student Loan Hero puts out that families can use to say, okay, well, you know, what are some of the what are some of the lenders out there in that arena, um, and then really comparing them side by side? Uh, the other thing that I think the family should look at too is beyond the first year. You know, if they have to borrow ten thousand dollars for the first year, you know, is that something that they're going to have to borrow in the future? And maybe they're going to have to borrow more in the future because maybe they have some resources, some savings. Um, other resources that they can pull from for the first year, for the second year, and those, those resources are depleted, uh, then they might have a greater shortfall in upper class years. So I really encourage families that when they're comparing, you know, and starting to research loan options, also look at, you know, what it's going to cost, what it's going to cost them over the entire education for their college-bound student and really for all of their students.
1: Right. And, you know, Beth, the inevitable question that we get on this front whenever we uh, talk about comparing different options and looking what's best for you, it comes back down to, all right, but what do you recommend? What should I do? So are there loans that you might recommend, especially if students are borrowing on their own, that you recommend are going to be better than others?
2: We don't. Um, we, Ian, we completely stay um, unbiased and neutral. Um, That's good. Most colleges are going to do the same. Uh, we'll definitely, you know, share with families. You know, these are different uh, loans out there. Uh, we'll share that. You know, these are the places that you can research. You know, the different loan options. But we stay very neutral. That this is a family's decision, and really, there isn't one loan that we're like, "Hey, this is the loan that you have to borrow."
1: Gotcha. Um, so, the, so it's, it really is a family decision, and there are there are good options, I think, out there um, that are going to help finance this education, and you just want to look really carefully. Now, you know, I was um, earlier today, I was looking at my uh, credit report, um, and you know, that's something I think that all adults are pretty well aware of. It's, also, it's been in the news. Um, if you're trying to make any big change, you might uh, need to be aware of where your credit is. How does co-signing on a loan affect uh, the credit for a parent or student?
2: Well, any loan that you take out or that you co-sign on is going to show up on your credit report. So, parents, that's where, you know, I mentioned earlier that if you're in a position where you think that, you know, your student's going to so- be able to solely take out the loan under their signature, that they're going to need a credit-worthy co So, you know, parents, if you're thinking of co-signing for your students, uh, then you just need to make sure that you know that that's going to impact uh, your credit score and, you know, appear on your credit report uh, the same way as if you had borrowed that loan. Now, on the... On the back end side, it's also very important to keep in mind that if the borrower, like if you're saying, hey, this is my student's loan, even though I co-signed on it, if your student's making late payments, it's going to negatively impact your credit. So one thing as a co-signer that you might want to consider doing is setting up a separate account where you can tie your loan payments to or tie the loan payments to. Uh, Maybe, parents, you can put in a couple months of payments into that account as a buffer um, and the student should be making the payments into this account, and the loan company will be pulling payments from this account. So you can kind of figure out, okay, well, you know what? Mm, hey, why is the balance going down in this account? You can kind of nip it in the bud. Have a conversation with your student. Have a conversation with the borrower that you co-signed for uh, versus finding out, oh, my gosh, why is there a 30-day late payment on my credit report, or why am I showing delinquencies on my credit report? And... You know, kind of a proactive approach um, to making sure that you don't have negative, you know, any type of negative impact on your on your credit report, spe- specifically when your students repaying it. But mm-hmm. in terms of the front end side, I mean, I guess if you have, you know, parents, if you have any big purchases in mind, if you're thinking of buying, you know, buying a house, if you're thinking of refinancing a house, um, if you're thinking of buying a car, you know, having this loan is going to impact your overall debt to income ratio. So, things to think about.
1: Yeah. There's some other things to think about. I think that at a very high level when you're evaluating loans, there's a tendency to look just at the interest rate. Um, can you just sort of briefly touch on the difference between the interest rate of a loan and the APR?
2: Sure. Uh, the interest rate is really just the cost of borrowing on the principal loan amount, um, whereas the APR is a broader measure, and it's looking at other things like fees or other costs that are built into the loan. Uh, So typically, the interest rate is going to give you an idea of what your monthly payment is going to be, whereas your APR is going to give you a better idea of what the total cost of borrowing um, that loan is.
1: Gotcha. That's helpful. Now, um, our interest rates, you know, I sort of... I like to simplify things, and I understand that loans are not particularly simple. Um, are interest rates the most important thing to consider when comparing loan options, or are there other things that we should be looking at that are uh, you know, maybe a little bit more of a micro level of detail here?
2: There are a lot of other things that families should be thinking about. I think that families often get caught up with, hey, this is a lower interest rate loan. This is the best loan for me. And I think that that's a great place to start when considering uh, choosing a loan. But other things that they want to consider. Loan fees, Um, you know, how much is that fee? Is it a fee that's removed from the loan up front? So if they're borrowing $10,000 and there's a 3% fee, they're going to get, you know, $300 less. And so they need to plan for that. Or is it a loan, is it a fee that is tacked on at the end? Um, So it's going to make their loan a little bit larger. Um, They also want to think about monthly payments. Uh, Many private loan companies uh, require that, A minimum monthly payment is made uh, while the student is in school. So it might be as little as $25, but that's just on that first-year loan. So if you're going to borrow for four years, then by the time your student is a fourth-year student, you could be looking at making a $100 monthly payment, specifically if your student is is not in that position uh, to make that payment. Some of you might also decide to actually pay interest only on the loan. Uh, some of you might decide to pay principal and interest. So you'll, that could also impact what that interest rate is. Um, if what the required monthly payment is, um, and that's where I mentioned looking beyond that first year. Specifically, let's say that you have you know, two children and that loan is going to come due because you've decided to postpone payments or your students postponing payments until after they graduate, but they can't you know, pay that loan on their own. Um, what's that monthly payment going to be four years from now when you have maybe your second one going off to college? Uh, parents, this is really important for you to think about. Your co-signing, is there a release option? Uh, many lenders indicate that there are co signer release options, but I want to say there's a big but there. While well, 36 on-time payments were made or 24 on-time payments were made, because maybe you were helping your student make those payments, when it's time to if they have that co-sign release, the lender's going to want to make sure that your student or the borrower can pass the credit check on their own. So if they can't pass the credit check on their own, then you may not be released from the loan within the time that you had anticipated. Uh, if the student's plan is to go to grad school, can they postpone payments? Can they defer that loan when they go off to grad school? If there's some type of economic hardship, are there options to postpone payments for that? So these are the little things to think about. I mean, these are things that you might not think about, but they all make up being successful and being a good steward of the money and repaying that loan back. You know, and you want to pay attention to little things. Um, also, you know, if something happens to the student, any type of death or permanent disability clause, or God forbid something were to happened to a cosigner. You know, a few years back... Um, one of my colleagues was working with a, with a family in the co-signer pass, and the lender called the loan due. They'd been paying it all along, but you want to make sure that you're reading the fine print and asking those questions, making sure that you know all of those answers and you're comfortable with that loan, and you can make those payments if you don't have that ability to defer or loan payments in the future.
1: That's all great information, Beth, and I think it it couldn't have come at a better time. Obviously, some families are getting ready for that first year of college, but if you're a parent of a younger student who has a year or two or three before they go off to college, it's still a good idea to be aware of some of these considerations and make sure that you're informed before you start taking out those loans. So, Beth, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and walking us through all these financing options.
2: Thanks, Ian, for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Of course. Now, when we come back, we're going to have an all-Portland segment. So grab a coffee, put a bird on it, and join us.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
3: visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting in are you finding your frequency it can be described
0: as that space between failure and success it's the future of digital media it's finding your voice it's engaging topics content and ideas
3: The leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the show. Now, before we introduce our next guest, I want to shine a school spotlight on our neighbors to the north and McGill University in Montreal. You love the idea of attending an international, world class research university that's not too far away? McGill University, located in safe and beautiful downtown Montreal, enrolls over 27,000 undergraduates, approximately 30% of whom are international citizens. From accounting to world religions, there are hundreds of academic fields to choose from, and the university makes it easy for students to personalize their ideal course of study. Through the Faculty of Arts and the Faculty of Science, for example, students can combine an arts major with a science major, resulting in multi track programs such as political science and psychology, or women's studies and biology. Given McGill's prime location, cultural and recreational diversions abound. Each year, the university sponsors nearly 700 musical performances, while students can also choose from a wide range of athletic programs. In addition to options such as varsity ice hockey and club cheerleading, students can join the unique co-ed sport known as woodsman that tests skills in axe throwing, wood chopping, and fire building. It is in Canada. After all, it's good to know that no essay is required when applying to McGill. Rather, admissions decisions are made primarily on a student's academic achievement. Now, heading off to school somewhere international can leave a student feeling like they're on a big adventure, but I think that sense of adventure comes for every student who begins their first year of college somewhere new. Joining me to talk about some of the ways students can feel a little more grounded during their college years is my colleague, formerly of the Lewis and Clark Admissions Office, Sarah Calvert Kubram. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
4: Hi, Ian. Thanks for
1: having me. Of course. Now, you know, this segment was initially billed as an opportunity for us to discuss some of the staff members that every student should know on their campus. And I think we'll get into some more interesting territory, but that sort of is where I'd like to start. Students are going to know professors, Mm -hmm. they're going to interact with TAs, but who are some people that every student should know on their campus?
4: Yeah. So oh, I have some very clear bias here because I, once upon a time, was a, an RA, a resident advisor in the residence mm-hmm. halls in my undergraduate career. Um, but I think that immediately for undergraduate students who live on campus, they need to go get to know and not be shy about it, the, the staff in the residence halls. Um, in most residence halls, there is a student worker so an r a who lives and works right there in the hall with them they 're usually an older student, maybe a sophomore junior senior who is there to be a mentor but also to facilitate fun social gatherings, help keep the residence halls safe, perhaps, um, work with some policy stuff depending on how the college sets it up. But they are there to help them guide that transition to college as a peer mentor and leader. But, in, on top of that, there are also professional staff members. They could have different titles at each school and maybe it's a resident director, an area director, um, Most of these people at this point have master's degrees. They are professionals in things like student development, higher education, things like counseling. They are there to be professional people who live in the community to support the students holistically. So that's kind of the low-hanging fruit. So They're there right when you get on campus. They live in your community. That's the Mm -hmm. first one that I would recommend um, as a guide and support as they arrive on campus.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. And I, I think it is sort of important to note that um, you know, sometimes students think of their resident directors or house advisors as someone with whom they need to have an adversarial relationship because they they sort of perceive them in some cases as babysitters or people who are there to enforce mm-hmm. the rules. And I think it doesn't have to be that way. And, and understanding that the purpose of those people on those campuses and in your residence halls is really to help provide mentoring opportunities and create activities mm-hmm. for you and welcome you into this community. So starting that off on the right foot, mm-hmm. I think, is just a great thing for every student to think about and um, a really great opportunity to begin that living experience with a lot of uh, quality connections with other people. Um, now, the, the residence halls, obviously, that's where you live, it's where you sleep, you come back to your dorms at the end of your day. Um, but there are also staff members elsewhere on campus that you might come across. Mm-hmm. Are there any that students should keep an eye out for and get to know?
4: So, yes, very much so, and I think it depends on the student, who those core people are going to be. Obviously, for student-athletes, their coaches are fundamental mentors and connectors in this whole process. Um, They help them connect to resources across the whole experience. They mentor them in sports, life, academics, you name it. Um, For a lot of students who show up on campus who perhaps have a, a learning difference or disability or need academic accommodations, most all colleges have an office. They have different titles, but it might have to do with student support services or accommodations where there are professionals that will, you know, get to know you and help you navigate that transition as a college student. Most colleges also have staff members in student affairs that are on the campus to help run all of the other programming. So, they might have someone in charge of student activities. They have staff members that oversee all of the fun events happening on campus who are great resources at knowing, you know, what, what is happening on campus and can help connect you to maybe your passion in high school that you want to continue in college. So, it really depends on the student's interest, but I think going to every event that is targeted to new students in your first few weeks is a way to figure out who who those people are. So, most schools have an activities fair um, where you get to go and meet these staff members that are involved in it, and not being shy and showing up is a good way to get to know them. Um, also for a lot of students, there are staff members on campus in charge of religious and spiritual life. So there could be, depending on the student's religious or spiritual background, professional staff members who they can also connect with on that part of their identity. There are also offices on every college campus I've been to about, um, all sorts, forms of identity. So racial and ethnic, um, identity, offices that work around gender and inclusion, and there are professional staff members and educators that work in those offices who can be really powerful guides and mentors for students as they show up on campus. Those are a few examples on more what I would call the student life side of things, but there are also a lot of logistical offices that are important too, and I'm happy to give you a few examples if you want.
1: Well, I think that I I liked a couple of things that you said in there just around the idea of not being shy and sort of stepping up and and introducing yourself. I think that, um, you know, it's important to keep in mind that all of the staff members that are on a college campus are educators in some way or another. They are there because they enjoy working with students and they're curious about students Mm -hmm. and where they come from and what their backgrounds are. Um, And so, you know, you never want to sort of feel shy about just stepping up and and introducing yourself and asking questions about a place. Um, They can really Mm -hmm. help you to understand where to go, what resources to take advantage of the, their professional staff. They've been there for years and in many cases, and so mm-hmm. they can point you in the right direction. So, you know, everybody starts from scratch when you go to college for the first time. And and it's a good reminder that you don't have to be shy about those conversations. You can really take advantage of them. But you said you, were mm-hmm. gonna, you wanted to build on a few more different offices, some other spaces that maybe students could have a look into and find some other people to connect with. What are some examples of those?
4: Well, some of them are honestly purely logistical at first, but sometimes you get to know interesting people. Um, I think that colleges can feel a little intimidating to students as they figure out, oh my goodness, what do these terms mean? What are these offices? What do I have to navigate? Um, And a big one for incoming students um, is boring as this might sound, is the Office of the Registrar. Um, The Office of the Registrar is in charge of all transcripts, awarding credit, everything to do with grades, classes, etc. And most college students have to go in there at some point to confirm their classes, to change their schedule, but a lot of incoming students might also be receiving credits for high AP scores or IB scores or college classes that they've taken. And that is the office that manages it. So if nothing else, learning where they are early and who they are and what they do, I think is really helpful. Um, Another big one that um, students, find the importance as I go through the college process is even figuring out who their designated financial aid officer is. Um, usually offices divided by alphabetics or uh, the first letter of the last name, things like that. Um, and going and figuring out, okay, who's my point person there as I need to navigate renewing my financial aid every year if I have questions about my scholarship, eligibility, loans, et cetera. Knowing the lay of the land of who does what in those offices knowing where they are and who your person is to go to is really helpful. Um, Even more basic than that, every college has some sort of advising model. Um, It might be in an advising center or it might be a professor that is assigned to the student as their advisor, Um, but prioritizing in that first week or two any opportunity that you're given to get to know that person is a pivotal part of of that transition as well. Um, and as you alluded, all of these people are there because they love working with students. But I think even in addition to that, philosophically, they are there and excited to help empower students to transition from adolescence to adulthood. So they're going to be there to help you navigate it, but they are really also helping you practice kind of being there as an adult versus an adolescent in high school, and they really see that this is a big time of transition, and they're helpful to kind of help navigate and teach you that that process.
1: Right. And there are some really terrific skills that you can develop as a student through that kind of conversation. Um, You know, you're going to be interviewing for internships, perhaps while you're a college student, you'll be interviewing for jobs Mm -hmm. after you graduate. And beginning to have these Mm -hmm. conversations with adults and talking about who you are, asking interesting questions is great practice for the kinds of conversations that you'll have later on. I think your point Mm -hmm. also touches on this idea that, these conversations are more interesting than the ones that maybe you can have with a teacher in high school or a guidance counselor in mm-hmm. high school because of the nature of relationship between a teacher and a 16 year old is different from a professional staff member and a 19 or 20 year old. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of fun to be on the level uh, with someone in the conversation that you're having. And I think you can um, have much more interesting conversations as a result of that um we mm-hmm. also find you know we did a, uh, some research uh, when when my time at reed where we were looking at sort of predictors for success for students and you know the number of contacts that students had with adults mm-hmm. correlated with success and student sort of students feeling plugged in and connected to the campus and what sort of is your mm-hmm. perspective on the value of a role that these kinds of relationships can play in a student's feelings about their college experience.
4: Yeah. You know, I um, I love that you referenced that research at Reed. Um, part of my background is that I used to be an administrator of a freshman study abroad program at Northeastern University. And in that program we did a lot of assessment and evaluation of retention. So what keeps students at the same university through their whole experience in college versus transferring. And we also found in that work that a big indicator of retention and being successful at a university is having meaningful mentorship relationships with adults on campus, with, um, you know, staff, faculty, whoever it might be. So I've seen that in kind of smaller research and the quantitative piece. But I've also experienced that very much um, as a staff person. Um, colleges all have career offices and centers, which are fantastic, to go and get formal mentorship around preparing for internships, career, life beyond college. But I, in my own experiences as a staff member at Boston College, Northeastern University, and Lewis and Clark, have found that sometimes the it- deepest, most rich mentorships come from your, your supervisor. It could be someone, you know, you have a work-study job on campus. Maybe you're a tour guide or an office assistant, um, and you're working with a staff member who really gets to know you. They see the quality of your work. They see your beauty as a human. They get to know you. And that person for years subsequently in your life can be a job reference, They can write letters of recommendation, perhaps for graduate school. They can give you feedback on things to consider doing or not doing to process decisions during college, like, huh, should I go study abroad or not? Should I do this internship? It's another more objective adult in your life to process this experience with. Um, I've had the honor of attending weddings of students that I've worked with in the past, seeing them have kids. Um, It's really pretty wonderful, and it's a... thing that I've seen from students I've worked at all three institutions that is um, enriching for me, but I think also incredibly beneficial for the students to have that trusted adult and mentor who can support them both during college and in life beyond. So I think there are many added values to those relationships.
1: Yeah. And these are things that part of the reason that we're having this conversation on the show today is because I think that these are things that don't necessarily occur to students. When they think about going off Mm -hmm. to college, they're going to say, great, I'm going to meet my friends for the rest of my life. Um, I might meet a partner. Uh, I'm certainly going to interact with professors. I'm going to take some classes. But there often is this huge piece of a college experience, which is the staff members that are there that students tend to overlook and and don't often think about that as being a part of their experience. And when I sort of reflect on the people that I connected with um, most often as adults within my my college career, um, it were faculty members, but not always because of the classes that I had with them, but because of other ways that I was Mm -hmm. able to interact and the comfort level that's developed from practicing this kind of interaction. And then, of course, staff members. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten a job in admission if I had not started as an intern in the admission office and and started to make those Mm -hmm. connections with staff members there. So um, it's a really great reminder. That the college experience is about more than just classes and professors and and friends, but there are other opportunities there too. Any sort of parting words of wisdom that you want to share, uh, Sarah, in the last minute or so we have?
4: You know, one perhaps silly anecdote I'll just share, but I think it just gives the human element of this, is I just had this memory. When I was an admissions officer, I would travel around the country, as they all do, and interview students. I interviewed a young man in Arizona at his high school. He had never left Arizona in his entire life. Long story short, he was admitted to Lewis and Clark College, got a great scholarship, and came. Um, One morning, I reached out to him. I hired him as my student assistant because I just was so impressed with him. Got to know him. He became a part of our office. And one fall morning, he saw fog, literally for the first time in his entire life. And he was walking to class, and he ran up the stairs to my office just to tell me, oh, my goodness, fog is not just in the movies. Um, And he was so excited to show share this moment with me, and um, it was just wonderful to know that this young man undergoing this huge transition to college knew that I was a safe person, that he could come and have fun with in life as well. And I think that when students now in our mobile society are moving all over the country and world to go to college it's just really important to find those relationships and touch points so if you meet someone when you get to college maybe before you get to college that you connect with pursue that relationship and don't feel shy about it know that there can be someone who's excited to connect with you like that as well
1: definitely i love it um that's a great place to leave it thanks sarah for coming on the show
4: yeah thank you Ian. have a
1: good rest of your day you too uh folks when we come back we're going to dive into the apply texas application so stick around
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
3: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience at a track record that's helped every single student get into college most into their top choice schools so make the decision to come work with college coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters the one in the envelope that says yes visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You
0: are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the
1: show. Now, if you're anything like me, the catchphrase, don't mess with Texas, has always sounded a little intimidating. And I hope that even if you have heard it, it hasn't discouraged you from considering all the great colleges and universities in Texas for the next stop in your educational journey. We want to make sure that when you dive in on that Texas application, you know everything there is to know about doing it right. Joining me to walk us through the Apply Texas application is my colleague from the wild, wild west, Joy Biskornet. Hey, Joy. Hey, Ian. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, So the Apply Texas application is one of those big application platforms. I think it's one of the most unusual application platforms that we see, uh, and it touches a lot of students because a lot of people want to go to college in Texas or already live in Texas and want to stay in in Texas for college. So we want to help our listeners understand that Apply Texas application better. Um, Now, the place I want to start is where we started. We started talking about this yesterday, How do you know if you're going to use the Apply Texas application and when is it appropriate to do so? I think it, it sounds like it's pretty obvious, but there are some important considerations for families to take into account. Yep.
5: So I think that's the best place to start when thinking about when do I use the Apply Texas application? It's where are you going to apply? So if you're a Texas resident or even if you're an out-of-state resident thinking about going to school within Texas, if you're applying to only Texas schools and nowhere else, with one caveat, you can use the Apply Texas application. It's a great application in that way in that it covers a number of schools and it's one application, so it kind of eases your workload in some ways. The exception is with Rice University. Rice does not accept the Apply Texas application. Rice only accepts the common application. So, if you're staying within Texas or applying to only Texas schools and that includes Rice, you'll fill out two applications, um, Apply Texas and the common application. Where it gets a little more confusing or might be a little bit of added work is if you're applying to certain Texas schools, namely UT Austin and Texas A&M, and you're thinking about applying to other schools out of state. Um, both those universities within the past few years have started to accept the coalition application. And that application, as we know, is accepted by a number of other colleges throughout the U.S. If you are thinking about applying to, say, um, University of Maryland or the University of Washington or even University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and you're also thinking about applying to UT Austin and or Texas A&M, then you might want to use the coalition application because those schools accept that application.
1: So you've got this big Venn diagram of sorts where you've got the Common App and you've got the coalition app and you've got the Apply Texas app. If you're applying to the UCs, please don't even enter into this conversation that's totally separate. But you've got these sort of three things that overlap with different possibilities here and there. And I think what you want to identify is what is the way for me to um, save myself the most time in terms of filling out different applications. If UT is the only school that you're going to apply to within Texas, and you're also applying to the University of Washington, you know you have to use that coalition app. So you might as well use it for UT. Um, but I, I think that, you know, if you're applying to UT and maybe another school in Texas that doesn't take the coalition, how should students think about the difference between using the apply Texas app or the coalition app when there are both options are sort of on the table for them? Um, you know, let's say I'm applying to UT Austin, but I'm also applying to UT Dallas and Texas A&M. Um, how should I decide which platform is going to be better for me to use?
5: Yeah. Um, well, if we think about it, Apply Texas has been the application platform for the state of Texas for a number of years. Uh, admission officers at those colleges and universities within the, the state have such a great level of familiarity with Apply Texas that they know where all the information is and can really glean the most important parts of a student's academic, extracurricular, and personal life um, to really get a great snapshot of who the applicant is. Coalition app has been used by just two schools in Texas for just a few years. So there's not a, as great a level of familiarity with how that application comes through, how it looks. Um, for a reader. So, I think go with what you know or go with what the reader knows. If that Apply Texas application is um, available and you're choosing between that and the coalition, I would say go with the Apply Texas application. In, In truth, it might make you, depending on where else you're applying... It might give you one more application to fill out, but in the long run, it might just be easier for who's ever on the other side of that application who's reading it.
1: Right, and I, I think it's important to say that um, you know, there isn't sort of this process where someone says, this person applied, Apply Texas, and so we're going to give them a leg up in the process. But I do think that there is an element of not, you know, stressing out or confusing your reader and, and using the, the application they've used for decades is probably something that's going to be a little bit more comfortable. Um, that said, you as a student can also create applications for both, have an account for both. Look into which one you feel is a better fit for what you want to do, Um, and you can choose between those two options as well. So, you know, there's the sort of inputs in the side that you're using it, your user experience, and then there's also the outputs, which is how the reader is ultimately going to engage with it. You can't know what those outputs are, but, you know, I I think that all things being equal, you want to go with something that's been around for a little bit longer. Um, now, I, I, we've talked a little bit about the app platform, and I think we'll come back to that, Joy. But I, I want to sort of, there's some special um, rules for admission in Texas, especially for in state students, and I want to make sure that we cover those for UT and AM both, because those are the two most popular campuses within the state. You want to talk about those uh, percent rules for auto admission for AM and UT? Sure.
5: So um, let's start with AM, since you said that first. Um, so, they're auto-admit for A&M, how it works is if a student is in the top 10% of their graduating class by the time that they apply, um, then they are automatically admitted to Texas A&M. Now, that admits them to the university overall. It doesn't necessarily admit them to the major of their choice. So, that goes into that next level of review. But if you're in the top 10% of your graduating class, um, then you can be admitted to um Texas A&M now currently A&M also has what's known as academic admits um, the top 25% of a graduating class before the app uh before the app deadline if you're in the top quartile of your class and you meet minimum testing requirements for either the SAT or the ACT then you'll be admitted. That's an academic admit, but here's the thing. This really only um, is uh, a a possibility for this year's uh, applicant pool. Beginning with applicants for the fall of 2021, academic admission will no longer be available. So, it will just go to that top 10% for the auto-admit and no longer will A&M consider um, academic admits. So now let's move on to uh, UT. So UT right now is accepting um, auto admit for the top six percent of a graduate of high school um, graduates. So there was um, it used to be a little bit larger, but then in two thousand nine, uh, the Texas legislature updated the law about auto admits to um, so that UT must auto admit enough students to fill 75% of available Texas resident spaces. And what um, UT does, it'll update that percentage each year. So, this year, it's the top 6%. In the past, it's been the top 7%. So, it fluctuates each fall, and um, at that time... The university then um, reaches out to Texas school officials and notifies them what the rank um, is needed uh, for current juniors. Um, wh- what they need to uh, obtain is in, uh, in terms of their rank by the end of junior year to be considered for that auto admit.
1: Now, you know, I wanted to ask a question around rolling admissions for these schools, because I think that there's a there's some role that rolling admissions plays. There's some encouragement for students who are applying to A&M to hurry up and submit their applications as soon as they can. UT, maybe wait a little bit longer and get the app up to a different standard of quality. How does rolling admissions sort of play a role here? Sure.
5: So the Applied Texas application um, opens July 1st. So really... It opens earlier than um, other applications, like the Common Mm -hmm. App or the Coalition App. Um, So students are encouraged to apply early as possible. For many students, they're submitting their applications before they head back to school in fall of their senior year, because A&M does admit students on a rolling basis. So the admission committee is making decisions as applications come in. So it's really in a student's best interest to apply early um, so that they can get full consideration for their major of choice, particularly if you're thinking about popular majors like um, engineering or computer science. In fact, Mm -hmm. um, for the College of Engineering or students who are interested in applying to engineering, there is actually an early action deadline, um, which is October 15th. So students should really, if you're thinking about um, applying to engineering at A&M, that October 15th goal is really that hard deadline. You want to have your application in by that deadline, if not well before.
1: Gotcha. I think that that makes sense. And it's a good reminder for students, I think, to to stay on top of things, to keep an eye out for different deadlines, read the fine print, review the websites for Apply Texas, figure out how these different uh, schools are going to treat applicants for different programs. Um, Joy, I want to touch really briefly on resumes. We have about one minute here. Um, With respect to activities lists, students do a lot of self-reporting on their activities lists, and the resume is not required, but I know that it's been a big part of their review in the past. Is there anything that you'd like to say to out-of-state applicants about the resume in the next 30 seconds or so? Sure.
5: So this is specifically to UT Austin. While it is optional, I highly encourage students, especially those applying from out of state, to submit an expanded resume. This can include everything that you included in the application itself, plus everything else that you've done. Your achievements, your activities, leadership, um, employment that you may have had, um, and this is more details. It's not just a general overview, but you want to give detailed um, details about each of your extracurricular activities that's on that resume, including the number of hours per week and weeks per year that you've been involved uh, with that activity.
1: Right. as a great way to show the scope of your engagement. Um, Joy, thanks for coming on the show and talking a little bit about Texas in the limited time that we had. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Of course. So folks, we'll be back next week for the final August episode of Getting In. Sally will take on the captain's chair, walking you through essay supplements for Vassar College and the University of Rochester. So you want to miss it if you're looking at those two schools. She'll also be fielding questions, which you can always send to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. That's it for me this week. I'm off to the Wallawas in eastern Oregon, where I'll enjoy campfire, lake views, and a few good books. As your summer draws to a close, I hope that you're able to close out your reading list in style and that you feel refreshed refreshed and recharged for the start of another school year. Have a wonderful weekend, wherever you are. and We'll see you
0: next time. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.